Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we saw the Oxamite merchant class begin to get outcompeted by Somali maritime fleets, the primary Oxamite port at Adulis get razed by the Muslim Caliph Umar, and saw the remains of the Oxamite Empire finally stabilize after centuries of unmitigated freefall. Unfortunately though, the period following the stabilization is one that is almost impossible to glean any understanding of. From the late 7th century all the way until the late 800s AD, we know almost nothing about what was happening in Oxum. However, the small tidbits of information that appear during this period tell us that a lot of very important stuff went on during this time. While we don't fully understand why, the Oxumite Empire would undergo radical and permanent changes to its society, government, and economy during this era. Episode 26, The War for the Dalek Islands and the Oxumite Dark Age. Starting with the rule of Quastantinos, Oxum entered a historiographical Dark Age. I've described a few eras in Oxumite history as lacking in reliable historical records, but the era between the 7th and 10th centuries brings things to a whole new level. While we know the names of some of the kings in this era, like Odegosh and Azur, for example, that's about all the information we have. They're basically just names on paper to us. In the place of reliable monastery manuscripts, this era's history derives exclusively from the often contradictory oral traditions of the people who lived in the region after the Oxumite Empire's collapse. Now, I don't want to just entirely dismiss oral histories. They are useful, and can sometimes be used to construct a reliable picture of the past when they align with archaeological and textual evidence. However, this is not the case with the oral histories of the Oxumite Dark Age. The oral histories that describe this period are few and far between, and often actively contradict the archaeological evidence of the era, or are obvious fabrications from later periods. Now, the next few episodes after this one will focus on some of the more intriguing and plausible oral histories which describe the late Oxumite period, but until then, we're basically in the dark. Even small hints about the kings of this period are incredibly elusive. The details of their reigns, the personalities, the developments of their time on the throne, are almost always completely unknown. In fact, this era is so poorly understood that even the order in which these obscure kings ruled is uncertain. So, unfortunately, I will be forced not to discuss this era through our usual narrative style, but through brief, sweeping generalizations, at least until we reach the 10th century. So, with that said, let's generalize. While we don't know much about the specific political and historical developments occurring throughout the Oxumite Empire at this time, there are a few things we can say for certain. For starters, we know with absolute certainty that this era saw a gradual decentralization of power away from the Negus of Oxum, who, remember, was no longer ruling from the city of Oxum itself. In the place of the centralized empire of old, the Oxumite Empire, in big scare quotes, was now basically just a collection of semi-independent landowners who vaguely pledged allegiance to the Negus. To those of you who have studied history in other parts of the world, this type of society should sound familiar to you. Oxum was now a feudal society. However, it's important to highlight that, yes, these oaths of allegiance were vague, and even in the best times, unreliable. Even during the golden age of its past, Oxum has, like any other society on earth, struggled to control its elites. On numerous occasions, local landowners, nobles, and especially generals have run into disagreements with the Negus at the time and rose up in rebellion. Abraha, Mahdi Karib, and the Hatsani Daniel all come to mind as examples of why you shouldn't necessarily trust Oxumite generals or other elites to stay loyal to the interests of the state. Well, with the empire now a decentralized feudal society, take that problem and magnify it by a hundred. 
Now every Aksumite territory is run by a potential Daniel or Abraha. Nowhere was this more true than in the southeast of the Aksumite domain. Now, if you'll remember all the way back to episode 15 on Gadarot and the early Aksumite expansion, you'll remember that the ancient Negus Gadarot led numerous campaigns against the various Cushitic and Semitic-speaking peoples that surrounded the Aksumite frontier. One of the first peoples to be conquered by Gadarot was called the Athagaus, though I think we've advanced far enough in time that we can comfortably call them by their modern name, the Aga. The Aga are an ethnic group scattered throughout the northern Ethiopian highlands. Since their conquest by the Aksumites, most, but not all, Aga had converted to Christianity. Some actually converted to Judaism, and formed a significant portion of the Jewish Beta Israel population in the Semian Mountains, while a small minority continued the practice of their traditional faith, which combined aspects of Abrahamic monotheism with the old polytheistic practices of pre-Christian Aksum, as well as the traditional henotheism of the Cushitic peoples of East Africa. The Aga, at least those who were Christian, proved to be the non-Aksumite ethnicity which was the most thoroughly integrated into Aksumite society. In fact, the primarily Aga city of Sokota is on the short list for candidates of the location of Kubar, an Aksumite city which rapidly grew to significance during this era, and, spoiler alert, later became the Aksumite capital. The predominantly Aga enclaves in the eastern countryside had suffered comparatively little of the soil exhaustion that ravaged the cosmopolitan centers of the Aksumite Empire. So, while the rural landowning class was, in general, becoming more powerful throughout the empire, the landowners in the disproportionately productive Aga region were becoming especially more influential. Now, as the kings of Aksum grew increasingly weak and the feudal landowners stronger, the Negus could no longer rely on force alone to keep their subjects in line. In order to raise soldiers, the Aksumite kings of this era had to rely on the goodwill of their feudal subjects. The landowners of the Aksumite Empire would provide their personal bodyguards and peasant conscripts from their land, which, along with the forces provided by the other landowners of the empire, could coalesce into something resembling an army. However, this process made the king of Aksum incredibly reliant on the nobility. If a large portion of the landowning nobility revolted, what could the king do? Who would raise in that army to put down the nobility? The nobility certainly aren't going to do it. So, the Negus had to increasingly rely on their legitimacy to ensure that these revolts never occurred in the first place. By legitimacy, I mean there had to be an unquestioned consensus that the King of Oxum was the one and only King of Oxum, and that any potential rival would be viewed as an illegitimate pretender. This legitimacy was provided primarily by the church. As well as legitimacy, the Aksumite state came to rely upon the church to resolve disputes over taxation, raising armies, and basically running the entire state bureaucracy. If an important landowner was refusing to pay taxes or raise an army for the king, the church would send a representative, like a priest or bishop, to go chew the landowner out. Hey man, go pay your taxes to the king, or you're gonna burn in hell for all eternity. And if that didn't work, the king would raise a bunch of armies from the other, more loyal landowners, and go arrest or kill the offending noble. Basically, the church was supposed to function as something of an intermediary between the king and the landowning class. This position as a mediator, however, gave the church a lot more power than you might expect. Essentially, if the king ever wanted something from the landowners, which he did a lot these days, he relied on the church to butter the landowners up enough to fulfill his requests. However, if, say, the nobility wanted something and the church happened to agree with their demands, there was basically nothing the king could do. In this sense, you can think of the church as, essentially, the tie-breaking vote in any disputes in matters of state. This status engendered the church with a ton of informal power. 
which church leaders throughout this period would increasingly solidify into formal power. Those taxes that the church was making the landowners pay? Well, they gradually began taking an increasingly substantial portion of that for themselves. By the late 9th century, the church had become so influential in Oxamite politics that church elites vested the power in themselves to appoint the king. That's right, the heads of the Oxamite church got to choose who was the king. Of course, this increased their power even more, because this basically guaranteed that the king was always loyal to their interests. As the Oxamite church elites grew increasingly powerful within the empire, a wedge began to form between the Oxamite church and one of the last institutions that they were still beholden to. If you remember all the way back to our episodes on Azana, you'll remember that Oxum had, really since the introduction of Christianity, the Oxamite church had always maintained a tradition of pseudo-subservience to the Patriarchate of Alexandria. Now, even though Egypt was ruled by a Muslim dynasty at this time, the populace of Egypt was still predominantly Christian, and the Egyptian Orthodox, or Coptic Church, maintained its influence not only in Egyptian politics, but in Aksum as well. The Abuna, or Patriarch of the Aksumite Church, was always an Egyptian appointee, but this appointee would have to struggle to assert their power over the numerous ambitious local priests in Ethiopia. Now, throughout the introduction of Christianity until around the 8th century, this balance pretty firmly favored the Egyptian appointees. The native priests enjoyed firmly entrenched local support, had decades of experience in their positions, and were more familiar with this society compared to their foreign appointees. But the Egyptian appointees had an ace up their sleeve, the support of Anegis. The kings of Oxum, of course, much preferred that a relatively easy-to-control foreign appointee ran the church, and not a coalition of firmly entrenched priests. However, as the kings of Oxum grew less influential, this support gradually meant less. By the start of the 9th century, the ambitious Oxumite church establishment decided that they were sick of having their power limited by the Egyptian church. When the current Abana died, a new one was chosen not from a Coptic appointee, but from among a cadre of influential local priests. The Copts, for their part, were outraged by this, and initiated a decades-long schism between the Ethiopian and Coptic churches. Now, there's one class within Oxum that I haven't mentioned yet in this breakdown of late Oxumite class politics. Where are the merchants? The merchants have been an incredibly important aspect of Oxumite society since, well, pretty much forever. So what are they doing in this era? Well, unlike the church, whose influence was waxing during this period, the influence of Oxum's merchant class was rapidly waning. Now, we've already touched a little bit on why Oxumite merchants were struggling during this era. During the 7th century, they began to be outcompeted by the merchants of various Somali city-states, and things only got worse when the Rashidun Caliphate burnt down the premier Oxumite port city of Adulis to combat the increasing spread of piracy. However, while the wealth and power of Oxumite merchants was severely harmed by the destruction of Adulis, some Oxumite merchants still continued to operate their ships out of other ports around the Gulf of Zula and the Red Sea coast. However, these already struggling merchants were dealt yet another blow by the loss of two specific territories. The first of these territories was Avalites, or as I'll henceforth call it by its modern name, Zela. This predominantly Somali city on the Red Sea coast had served as an integral part of the Aksumite trade empire since it was conquered by Gadarat five centuries prior. The city acted not only as a valuable trade port, but also as the empire's stable eastern frontier. However, with Aksumite power so rapidly declining in the Red Sea, so too did Aksumite influence within Zela. The Somali clan, which had long served as the city's dominant economic and political elite, known as the Deer Clan, 
decided that they'd be better off ending their payment of taxes to Oxum. The Oxumites, preoccupied with internal power struggles, were incapable of protesting this secession. While the secession of the valuable port of Zela was certainly bad for the merchants of Oxum, things got far worse in the early 8th century. You see, all ports on the Bay of Zula, the place where Adulis is located, have to pass through a chain of islands that hug the African Red Sea coast, called the Dalek Archipelago. Controlling this archipelago would allow you to basically control all shipping that ran through the Gulf of Zula, but it was even more important than that. The islands produced numerous valuable exotic exports, which Oxumite merchants desperately relied upon now that their roles in the incense and ivory trades had been diminished for the last few centuries. The Dalek Islands produced turtle shells, exotic seabird eggs, corals, and most importantly, major pearl fisheries. These were some of the last desirable exports that Oxumite merchants could sell to the outside world. The Dalek Islands had been a part of the Oxumite Empire since the earliest expansion of the state, but that changed in 701, when a navy from the Muslim Umayyad Caliphate captured the islands and turned them into a prison colony. Now, the Oxumite merchants knew just how important the Dalek Islands were, and didn't just roll over and allow these crucial islands to fall into foreign hands. Throughout the 8th and 9th centuries, Oxumite merchant fleets, probably independent of any support from the Oxumite Empire, fought an informal naval war with the Caliphate to take back the Daleks. These merchants were even surprisingly successful. They retook control of the Isles, and in 702, briefly occupied the crucial Arabian port of Jeddah. The merchants managed to maintain a loose control over the Dalek Islands for the next century. However, this control wavered significantly by the years. The Oxumite merchant fleet would be repeatedly driven from the islands, then briefly retake them, be driven back a few years later, only to retake them again, like a transoceanic game of ping-pong. However, the constant swing of control back and forth proved to weaken both sides' authority in governing the islands. By the end of the 9th century, the islands came under the control of the Ziyadids, a Muslim dynasty from Yemen. But soon after, the island's fed-up residents broke free from their Yemeni overlords. Instead of reverting back to Oxumite influence, however, the archipelago came under the control of an independent Muslim state called the Sultanate of Dalek. And, spoiler alert for, uh, history, but this Sultanate of Dalek will outlive the Oxumite Empire. The newest premium episode of the show will focus on the interesting history of this Sultanate of Dalek. So if you'd like to learn more about this unusual Islamic archipelagic state, you can access that episode by supporting the show on Patreon. Supporting us on Patreon also helps us continue making these podcasts. So, if you've been enjoying the free education we provide with this show, I would really encourage that you support the show on Patreon. And to those of you already supporting us, a hearty thank you, and please enjoy the episode. With the establishment of the Sultanate of Dalek, the last vestiges of Oxumite mercantile influence, the ports of the Red Sea coast, were now forced to pass through a foreign territory, and taxed accordingly. While Oxumite merchants continued to trade with the Arab world, this was the final nail in the coffin for Oxum as a trade power. In the year 879, however, the merchants of Oxum would make one final ambitious push for a restoration of their power. That year, an Oxumite fleet invaded Sokotra, a large island that lies off the coast of Somalia. Sokotra lies at a strategic location on the route from southeastern Africa to the Arabian Peninsula. By occupying and holding control over the island, Oxumite merchants could insert themselves into a new revenue stream of this lucrative trade route. The initial invasion succeeded, and the Oxumite merchant navy settled in for a prolonged island occupation. Fortifications were built across Sokotra, and the Oxumite church even sent a priest to be ordained as the new bishop of the island territory. 
Clearly, the Oxmite intention was to turn Socotra into a core and crucial territory of the Oxmite realm for the foreseeable future. However, this was simply not meant to be. The Imam of Oman, whose kingdom had been happily dominating the lucrative trade route from southern Africa to Arabia, was not happy that this Oxmite fleet was suddenly inserting themselves into his sphere of influence. The following year, he sent his entire navy to Socotra, defeated the Oxmite merchant fleet, and kicked the Oxmite occupation off of the island permanently. With their final desperate push for influence thwarted, the Oxmite merchant class once again slumped into a state of decline. So, to go back to our original question, that's why the Oxmite merchant class steadily lost influence during this time period. From now on, the defeated Oxmite merchant class only held influence in transporting goods between the cities of Oxum. With each passing decade, as the Oxmite economy ran less on trade and finished goods, and more on subsistence agriculture, the already declining cities became even emptier. Oxum itself, which at its height in 550 AD is estimated to have a population in the hundreds of thousands, was now essentially a ghost town. Yeha, once the capital of Damat and the second city of Oxum, gradually withered from a prominent city into a tiny village. Most of the population scattered into the countryside surrounding the city, while a few hundred brave residents continued to live their lives in the crumbling metropolis. Kohaito, another important Oxumite city, permanently stopped existing sometime in the 7th century. Even the current capital, Jarma, was not spared from this decline. Deurbanization became so rampant that even the concept of a capital city wasn't really workable in the increasingly rural Oxum. Sometime in the 8th century, the capital was once again moved. Now, rather than Jarma, a mysterious city called Kubar would serve as the capital of Oxum. Now, where exactly Kubar was is an archaeological mystery. Some potential sites have been proposed, like the site in the Agar region that I mentioned earlier, but none of these are exactly certain. But the reality is, is that it doesn't really matter where Kubar was. Oxum was no longer a simple network of a few interconnected cities that could be ruled over from a stagnant throne, but was a complicated web of hundreds of rural hamlets. Realistically, the king and his advisors couldn't expect to keep up with what was happening in the countryside from a throne room in some far-off city. The true basis of power was based in, well, wherever the king and his advisors happened to be at the moment. So, while this mysterious town of Kubar was the de jure capital of the empire, it's more realistic to think of Oxum as not really having a capital city during this time. Rather, the empire had, I guess what you could call a mobile capital, consisting of the king and an entourage of elites that followed him wherever he went. So, to summarize everything you need to know about Oxum at the dawn of the 10th century, the merchants and king have lost a ton of power, while landowners, and especially the church, have gained a lot of power. The church, seeking to consolidate the power of local priests, began a religious schism with the Coptic Church of Egypt. Oxum is increasingly transforming from an urban civilization into a rural one. The local Aga elites on the frontiers of the empire are becoming increasingly independent, and the empire no longer has a formal capital. And, just like that, we're more or less caught up with the status quo at the dawn of the 10th century. So, I'll admit, this was kind of a weird episode, and broke from our normal narrative-based format. However, that's kind of what we had to do during such a dark age of history. I can't really go off a narrative when there's no narratives from the time that are reliable enough to be called history. So, I'll admit, this is kind of a weird episode, and broke from our normal format. To be honest, I didn't like writing or recording this one as much as my normal episodes, because I like the narrative format. I mean, that's why I do it. But, whether you like this more summary-centric style or not, I think you guys will really enjoy what's planned for our next episode. 
I know that, well, really ever since Abraha's Rebellion, the story of Oxum has kind of devolved into a depressing civilizational death spiral. And it's weird, right? After writing hours upon hours of content about the Oxumite Empire, I've kind of grown attached to it. And while things won't get any better in the long term, next episode will finally reverse that death spiral. At the end of the Oxumite Dark Ages, when everything seems so bleak, there's a brief period of resurgence. The sick man of East Africa will have one last golden era as we enter our final period of Oxumite history, the mythical period. Join us for our next episode, when the legendary king Degnajan will lead Oxum through its last age of glory. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com by giving the show a review on iTunes or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode and all others are brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Aaron L., Sandro, Kevin Johnson, Ayofagbamie, and many more. Myself and my editor each put about 20 hours of work each week into this show between researching, writing, recording, and editing. And the support of you guys on Patreon is really the engine that keeps the show running. So, thank you.